This week on the Defense Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, accountability coming for the Pentagon's zero trust strategy and the remade Defense Business Board takes on some tough tasks. It's Wednesday, November 30th, 2022. Welcome to the Defense Scoop podcast. Every week you'll learn what's going on in defense technology. I'm the host of the Defense Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Here's what's happening now. The Navy's looking to add to its roster of contractors for a billion dollar deal for unmanned vehicles. John Harper is managing editor for Defense Scoop and writing about it at defensescoop.com. John, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. What does the Navy want these contractors to do and what part of the Navy will they be working for? Welcome. Thanks, Francis. So the program executive office for unmanned and small combatants um, is looking for contractors uh, to provide services uh, in support of their uh, unmanned surface vessel family of systems. Um, so those support uh, aspects uh, really fall into uh, six categories, uh, payloads, non-payload sensors, mission support systems, autonomy and vehicle control systems, ashore and host platform elements, and logistics and sustainment. So it's basically these enabling capabilities that will allow these robo-ships essentially uh, to operate effectively. You write on defensecoop.com, the Navy initially tapped 40 vendors for the initiative in 2020. Now it's looking to cast its net again. Do we have a sense yet of how big they want the roster to be? What capabilities they want to add to among those six that you just outlined? Or is that still up in the air as a result of them putting out the services uh, sources sought notice? Well, I think the uh, total number of contractors uh, that they might be looking to bring on um, has yet to be determined. I'm sure that will be shaped by the responses from industry uh, to this RFI. The uh, uh, six categories that I just noted were the ones highlighted uh, in this document. So I believe that you know the uh, support services and capabilities that they're looking for uh, for this will also fall into those uh, six categories. Although you know it could potentially, uh, I suppose, in the future be expanded if that's the way the Navy wants to go. You write industry responses to the notice due by December nineteenth. What are the next steps that you would expect the Navy to take after those responses come in, John? Uh, well, uh, based on their assessments of those, um, uh, assuming they're you know favorable and still interested in moving forward, I would then expect uh, an RFP to come out um, and t- for this to move into the next stage um, and then eventually um, you know they could uh, bring on uh, however many contractors they want uh, into this contract vehicle which is uh, an IDIQ uh, multiple award uh, contract. Do we know uh, what the timeline unless they want to just, um, wanna, you know uh, they don't decide to go through the you know sort of standard RFP route if they want to use another mechanism you know Uh, I suppose they could go that way as well. Do we have any sense of what the timeline might be after the December 19th deadline? What might happen next and when we might see the final awards and might start to see contract execution? Uh, The uh, RFI doesn't uh, specify a timeline for that. Um, So that's a little bit unclear, although um, I believe that the last time they did this, when they were originally looking for um, uh, vendors for this, um, that uh, initial that solicitation, I think, went out in uh, late fall of 2019, roughly. Um, and then by early uh, 2020, 
Uh, I think they had started bringing vendors on for that. So I wouldn't expect there to be a huge lag in time uh, for that. Um, and, uh, you know, for this uh, particular initiative, uh, you know, the performance period was a, a five-year base period with an additional five-year ordering period option. So there's a kind of the timeframes they're looking at uh, at this point. You have a fascinating follow-on piece uh, uh, in the second part of this story um, that I wanted to ask you about too. What is Digital Horizon 2022 and what does the Navy hope to learn from it, John? Well, uh, that is um, a very interesting uh, initiative. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it falls into this larger Navy experimentation with unmanned platforms. This particular, this, uh, particular Digital Horizon event uh, is a three-week um, uh, initiative uh, that uh, is just kicked off um, in Bahrain with the U.S. Fifth Fleet. Um, it's supposed to last about three weeks, and it's going to involve integrating uh, robotic platforms with artificial intelligence capabilities. And that's really key to uh, the Navy's longer-term vision um, for employing these types of systems. They don't just want, you know, uh, tele-operated robo-ships that are very, uh, you know, human-intensive. Uh, they want systems with more autonomous capabilities. Um, and so AI is uh, a big part of that uh, and part of that uh, set of enabling capabilities that are going to be needed uh, as the Navy looks to uh, deploy more and more of these systems over time. As I read your report, John, it's, it sounded to me like a high-tech AI-intensive version of RIMPAC. Is it the same type of exercise? Am I seeing the right image in my mind as I read what you wrote? Well, it's not quite as uh, broad as RIMPAC. Certainly, RIMPAC is integrating more and more unmanned systems. Uh, RIMPAC is on a larger scale, so this one is a little bit more uh, narrowly focused. But the Navy is definitely looking to bring in, you know, international partners um, as they experiment with these unmanned systems and begin to deploy these uh, unmanned systems in larger numbers. Um, they've already been um, doing that. Uh, in Fifth Fleet um, and deploying these systems uh, for ISR missions, uh, essentially, you know, sail drone type platforms. Um, and they're hoping to have about 100 uh, unmanned surface vessels or USVs uh, deployed in the CENTCOM region uh, by next summer. And that would be a, com a combination of U.S. provided systems and those provided by allies and partners. Is there any significance to the fact that this is, uh, that, that the Fifth Fleet is conducting this, John, either geographical significance, significance in the capabilities that Fifth Fleet has in order to be able to execute this, or significance in the capabilities that they might need at some future time that they want to practice with? Absolutely. I mean, you know, obviously uh, the Central Command region um, is, uh, you know, has been a high priority region for the U.S. military. Uh, there are huge bodies of water uh, in that area that uh, Fifth Fleet is responsible for and uh, uh, Central Command uh, is responsible for and the Navy uh, component to that. Um, but, you know, these systems, you know, also have applicability to other regions of the world. Certainly, um, you know, uh, you noted RIMPAC, uh, you know, obviously the Indo-Pacific now is kind of the, the number one priority region. So I expect that, 
um, you know, as Task Force 59, this kind of unmanned task force and Fifth Fleet explore these technologies, start deploying them in larger numbers. Uh, I would not be surprised at all if other uh, combatant commands sort of adopt that uh, model um, and start implementing that um, in the areas that they're responsible for, particularly uh, Indo-Pacific Command. John, terrific reporting as always. Thanks for joining me to talk about it. Thanks, Francis. You can read more about that story and a lot more at defensescoop.com. The Defense Department says it will hold organizations inside the department responsible for hitting the deadlines in its new Zero Trust Strategy and Roadmap. DOD officials released the public version of the strategy and roadmap last Tuesday. Steve Stone is head of Zero Labs at Rubric and a former senior analyst for cyber threats at the Cyber Intelligence Branch at U.S. Transportation Command. Steve, welcome. Thanks for joining me today. The words of Dave McEwen, the uh, acting principal deputy CIO at DOD, we will hold them accountable by asking them to build a plan which the Zero Trust Portfolio Management Office will coordinate with them on the realistic nature of their plan. Budget, he says, is part of that as well, and not just technological accomplishment. What will you expect as a former official at Transcom that each of these organizations will have to do in order to meet that accountability that Dave McEwen is talking about? Welcome, Steve. Hey, Francis. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. I think there's going to be a couple of things. I think the first is Obviously, you know, wouldn't be a DOD initiative without some sort of framework and way to track it. So I think understanding compliance in the context of meeting the requirements for the effort will be pretty straightforward. I think the second thing, and this is something that that we talked about a lot in my time at U.S. Transportation Command, is how do you show that you're taking it serious? How do you show that you're weaving these initiatives into areas where the authors have not thought through? Um, and again, there's just, there's just no way you can write something at the DOD level and think through all the unique aspects for even just the combatant commands, little less all the fielded forces. There's just too much variety. So I think that will be one of the big pieces is how do you show from what you do as an organization as your core output, how do you show you've tied in with that? And, and I think that will be one of those things that will be very obvious and self-evident. It's either been embraced or it hasn't. And, and I think that will be very clear. And I think the best marker for that will be, is it your J6 talking about it or are there other elements discussing it? That was always a big piece for us at Transcom. Um, you know, when we talk anything cyber, if your J6 is the only one talking it, you, you've already shown that you're not embracing it. Is your three talking it? Is your two talking it? Is your five, your four, all those aspects. So that's the kind of things I would look for. When you talk about embracing something, it strikes me that is integral, I guess, to the reason that the first kind of pillar that uh, John Sherman writes about in this strategy is cultural adoption, zero trust cultural adoption. It, one of their goals is that DO, all DOD personnel are aware, understand, are trained and committed to a zero trust mindset and culture and support integration of ZT. They didn't go with technology first and neither did you as far as what's important to make this work. Yeah, and I think that's really smart on the DOD's part. That's a, a piece that we'll, we talk about openly at Rubric. I've seen it used as a really strong delineator between organizations that are able to field improvements and those that aren't, is are you embracing this culture? And again, not just, not just from a zero trust perspective as a concept, but really going after this because everything is a set of trade-offs. And if your culture doesn't embrace that, 
you're, you're going to have problems and it's just going to be a staff drill you go through. And I think here's one of the things I would say is, you know, having spent time in the military, spent time in the intelligence community as a government civilian, and then in the private sector, I, I think there's really two things that jump out on this. First is culture rules the environment. And that's the thing that I learned in the military. I didn't learn that in the private sector. If anything, I've watched the private sector catch up to that. And, and you can see how they embrace that. The second piece is it's been kind of interesting watching the government, in particular the DOD, talk about zero trust as this net new concept. It's fundamentally a zero trust organization, everything but cyber. It, the DOD in particular is well-versed in handling classified material. And the core concepts for zero trust are no different than that. The core concept of operational security is ingrained in you from your first day, whatever organization, whatever your role is as an E1, an O1, a GS15 about operational security. That's all we're talking about here. We're just talking about applying these concepts that have been around for hundreds of years in the cyber realm. So I think you're going to find organizations that are really able to fold this successfully into what they're doing in literally every other aspect of their lives and those that will treat it as a one-off and, you know, a problem for the nerds in the, the tech branches. And you're going to see that very strong delineation. Philosophical question then instead of a tactical question, Steve, does that concept, does that idea that zero trust has existed forever and we're just applying in a different way, make it easier or harder to actually implement and make mature? I think it should make it easier. I don't think that means that will happen because, um, again, Everything with cyber, we've had is this weird, especially almost generationally, this weird mix of like, that's just a thing that's a side piece versus what I think a lot of the younger parts of the workforce are seeing as core. And, and I'll use, again, I'll go back to a transcom example. The first time I had to walk into our four stars office and brief that individual on a cyber intrusion, you know, we looked around the office, there's no computer in it. This is a highly successful, incredibly intelligent, very senior leader. It's a combatant commander. And we're having to talk to that person about very technical aspects. And there's literally not even a computer in the office because he's never needed a computer. To, that's never what's defined his success. That's different for you know the younger generation. But again, I'll go back to culture. One of the best leaders I've ever had in the, the cyber realm was that individual because he fundamentally understood the impact to operations. He understood that, again, as like at Transcom, it's fundamentally a command and control organization. That's done through technology. He, he didn't need to be a technical expert to understand what made his command run. He already knew that. He knew that better than I did. So I love that the Zero Trust framework is starting with cultural adoption. I love that it's focused on enablement and acceleration. And then, oh, by the way, let's secure and defend the networks. I, I think that's a great approach. The second uh, goal behind cultural adoption is DOD information systems secured and defended. Number three, technology acceleration. And I note this one, technologies deploy at a pace equal to or exceeding industry advancements. That's a goal. Is that a is that a hittable goal for an organization like the Defense Department? Or is that aspirational in your view, Steve? That's a great question. Uh, I, I'll give you kind of a multi-part answer there. I think that's going to be the single hardest part for the DOD, in my opinion. Um, one of the things I've learned over and over again in the private sector, and you work with all kinds of industries. Um, I've been very lucky to work global. 
Um, the DOD adopts technology at a pretty slow rate, especially at scale. It, it is one of the significant challenges that DOD faces. So I would love to see the DOD solve that problem because I think it's one of the biggest challenges. The flip side of that, I think, is I'm not sure the DOD understands you know, what it means to outpace the private industry, as, as mentioned here. That's, that's such a broad goal that I think it's going to be much more granular. Now, with that being said, I think one of the things, and again, going back to culture, we, we tend to talk about things in cyber in isolation for the DOD, and I don't think that's true. The DOD's proven it can rapidly field ideas and concepts and rebuild itself and adjust where it has to. These are core elements that DOD does very well, pretty much except for on the technology side. And I, I, I think it's just this matter of we treat it in a different way. Um, there's a million examples of there uh, how the DOD can pivot and move fast. But it's got to be willing to let go of stuff. And the DOD does, that's where the DOD is challenged. Once the DOD picks something up, it's very hard to put it down. Whereas in the private sector, uh, we tend to do that very, very quickly. So I love that as a goal. I think it's achievable, but I think that's probably going to be the single hardest piece of this for the DOD. Regarding making that goal more granular, how would one go about doing that, Steve? I think the DOD is going to have to do one of the most challenging things for itself, which is seed control to lower level commands. And I'll, I'll go back to Transcom. Transcom's technology needs are very different from SOCOM's needs, wildly different. Transcom has to be able to project power. That's done often in conjunction with civilian companies, civilian infrastructure, foreign governments. That is, if anything, as open a system and system of systems as needs to be in place. You then pivot that with SOCOM, where classification, um, the ability to have discrete access, it's exactly the opposite of those things. So the DOD needs to say, let SOCOM figure out what that means and chase after it. Let Transcom figure out what that means and chase after it. Let STRATCOM do it. Let the services do it. But also make sure that no one loses the focus on that. That's something the DOD, in my opinion, has not been very good at traditionally. So that's, I think, how they do that. Let the granular pieces be figured out by the actual experts versus a top-down approach. I want to make sure that I don't forget the fourth of these high-level goals in the DOD strategy, zero trust enablement. And this one says, department and component level processes, policies, and funding are synchronized with zero trust principles and approaches. So all four of them on the table now, and I want to go back to that speed that you talked about just a second ago. This strategy says the department intends to implement distinct zero trust capabilities and activities as outlined in the strategy and associated roadmap by fiscal year 2027. Since you said that the organization can't anticipate the peculiarities of each piece of the organization, again, is that 2027 deadline aspirational or achievable, or I guess both is a possibility too, Steve? Yeah, I think it's both. And I think it's doable. I mean, five years in the, the technology landscape is, is literally a lifetime. I think about what we were talking about in the cyber threat landscape five years ago versus today. It's, it's night and day. So the world's going to change rapidly in five years. And organizations all over the world figure out how to move along with that. So it's doable. I think one of the things, though, and I, everything's going to change except for the fundamentals. And I'm not saying that to get too cute. Ultimately, zero trust is really a combination of three things. When you strip it all down and you really get after the guts of this thing, it's which users 
are accessing which data in which part of your architecture. That That's it. And it's the right user, the right data, the right part of your architecture. That sounds very simple, but there's a reason we're still struggling with this as a whole host of industries. Each of those components is very difficult. And the technology keeps changing underneath all of that year over year over year. But that's the goal, is the right user and only the right user accessing the right things and have the ability to access that while also understanding how to keep others from doing that. And is that stuff and that user where you think it is? And, and people tend to get distracted about like, we've got mobile workforces, everyone's going remote. It's still the same problem. It's just which device has which data, which user, let's just figure that out. And there's a range of ways to do that, a range of use cases, but that's what should be asked and in my opinion, looked at at that enterprise and that framework level is however the nuance and the solutions are, is it passing that sniff test? And if it's approached that way, this enablement goal can be met. It can be done in five years. Uh, it's a big challenge. Don't get me wrong. There is a massive amount of work inside of that. And I think that's how the DOD will end up solving this if they do. Steve Stone, great analysis. Thanks very much for joining me. I appreciate your time today. Thanks. You can read more about the New Zero Trust strategy and roadmap in today's show notes at defensescooppodcast.com. I'm Francis Rose, the host of the Defense Scoop Podcast. Cyber leaders from DOD, DHS, HHS, and a lot of other government agencies will be on hand for the Security Transformation Summit next Thursday at the Ritz-Carlton in Pentagon City. You can find a link to read more about the summit and register in today's show notes at defensescooppodcast.com. The Defense Business Board at the Pentagon is studying a number of issues that relate to the way that companies do business with DOD. Stan Soloway is president and CEO of Solero Strategies. He's former deputy undersecretary of defense for acquisition reform and a recent addition to the Defense Business Board. Stan, congratulations. Thanks for coming on the program. What are all the issues that the board is trying to undertake in the way that companies do business with DOD? Welcome. Thank you, Francis. It's great to be here as always. Uh, so the, there's, the, the board's agenda is pretty full, uh, which is one of the reasons that they chose to expand the board this year. Um, and just background folks who don't know that the board gets its assignments from the secretary, the deputy secretary and said, here's a topic that's really gnawing at us. We need some help on or Congress uh, can come in and, and direct studies. Um, and so not all of the studies are around the, the public private interface, but everything has to do with the business operations of the department. So you inevitably get into that question of the interface between the sectors. Um, you know, our, our primary focus is areas of technology, of human capital, logistics and supply chain, those kinds of questions. You probably saw, in fact, I know you saw, because we, we talked about it, a recent study that the board issued or approved uh, at our recent meeting a couple of weeks ago on uh, metrics and, and, and performance metrics around a variety of things, including outcomes associated with contracts. Um, and People like who you know, like Dave Walker, former Comptroller General, head of GAO, co-chaired that study. Uh, what makes the board interesting is it's a mix of a, few, a handful of us who had some experience in government and a whole bunch of folks who have extensive commercial experience and some folks who have both. Um, what I found compelling about the, the metric study, which was really well done, um, is they're raising and addressing a number of issues we've been talking about for almost as long as I've been in this business. Uh, and I think one of the things that that they're trying to stress to the leadership, to Deputy Secretary Hicks in particular, Secretary Austin, is that we really haven't solved the, the challenge of really having a consistent set of measures and metrics around all kinds of performance issues. 
Now, that same theme, we'll, I can't get into it now because we're not done with the study yet, but this, we're doing a study now on that I'm on on um, IT support, IT services in the department. And you're going to see a lot of that same theme emerge there too. Um, and so I think the, the board serves a really interesting role of trying to both identify new challenges, but then also recommend solutions. I mean, if you look at the metric study, there's a whole set of, of things they recommend, steps, and we'll do the same. Uh, human capital, there have been several studies done on human capital. Um, I think, again, one of the interesting questions have become how we rethink the human capital dynamic. And you know, we used to talk about you know, inherently governmental versus not inherently governmental. That's an interesting conversation. No one's suggesting you should outsource inherently governmental work. But how we think about staffing and resourcing and talent access, again, an age-old problem, but one that still has a lot, a lot of challenges associated with it. The uh, chair of the Defense Business Board, the former Secretary of the Air Force, Deborah Lee James, was on the program talking about that workforce uh, report when it came out over the summer, I think it was. Yep. One of the frustrations that I think people have both in and outside the building is a lot of the things that you just laid out there, you're right. We've been talking about these things for a long time. And I guess folks wonder at what point do we start to make progress? Do we start to decide, okay, this is the metrics that these are the metrics we're going to use, and now we're going to move forward and try to solve problems? That's absolutely right. And 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 look, it's been the case of almost every reform in quotes effort over the last 25 years. Uh, it continues to be the case with the work the board's doing. The Defense Innovation Board has its own set of agenda and its sets of recommendations they're going to be making on a variety of issues. There may be, I think I saw that the defense bill may have a requirement, but the Innovation Board and the Business Board to do a joint study, which I don't think has been done before, which would be interesting. Uh, but we're all in that same boat. And and one of the things that happens in these meetings, I, I sort of laugh when I think about it, is, you know, you have somebody who we have on our team, the, the CTO from Zillow or the CIO from Micron, like huge technology companies, and they make a comment and you just sort of look at them and smile and go, yeah. Well, that's not, and and, and so, and, and their face is like, are you kidding? That's, yeah. that's how you do it. Um, but you can't stop pushing at it, right? You can't, it's, it's it's not beating your head against the brick walls. It's pushing against the wall to try to move it. I think Deputy Secretary Hicks is dead serious about taking some of this stuff forward um, and, and really trying to set a, maybe a handful of, of, of reachable goals. Uh, but as, as the metric study said, sustained leadership involvement is the key, but you also have to have some sort of follow-on mechanism. So when that leadership is gone, we tried when I was in. We tried a GAO came to us and said, "We'll be your follow-on mechanism um, to the reform efforts that we had underway. We will be the ones who will police them after you guys are gone." Um, they did to a certain extent, but but they operated at the dictate of Congress, mm -hmm. and so Congress had them off doing other things. And so we haven't figured out yet how to maintain that pressure because we don't have one person like a CEO who can just say, "Boom, this is the way it's going to be." And you got to exactly where I wanted to go next, Dan, and that is, I think everybody agrees that Deputy Secretary Hicks is really serious about the initiatives she's undertaken and the priorities that she's set. And I haven't heard anybody argue with those priorities. So I think everybody, there's a kind of a commonality of agreement that they're headed in the right direction. But as you well know, uh, Deputy Secretary Hicks, with all due respect to her, has an expiration date on her head at some point. She's not going to be right. there forever. And perpetuating those things and making sure they continue after she's gone is is it's a difficult thing to predict. So, so you know, I'll, this I, I may be way off base here, but I'm going to throw out an idea that I think has some potential. 
There is, as you know, a, a study underway, not through the Defense Business Board, but a congressionally mandated study around the defense budgeting process, the, uh, the PPBE process. Every study that I've been involved in or any effort I've been involved in over the last several decades, there has been a resourcing element to it. And at the end of the day, you know, the old line about government, you know, it's the golden rule, he who holds the gold rules. Um, finding a way to moderate, modernize the budgeting process so that, so that resources are actually attached to metrics in the operational side in, 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 in much more aggressive ways might be how you actually get to that problem. Because at the end of the day, it's going to be all about dollars. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the day, a lot of business operations, even the great work that some of the services are doing, there's a lot of good stuff going on. It's still subject to the bill payer syndrome. And, you know, with Ukraine and with concerns about the rising China and potential challenges in the Indo-Pacific, there's going to have to, you have to find a way to maintain stability of funding, stability of resources tied to some of these changes. And I think that's the PPBE process doesn't lend itself to that just because of the time involved in it. So there needs to be some sort of new thinking about that. Well, just the, before we even get outside our own borders to think about Ukraine and China and so on, CRs. Oh, absolutely. And, absolutely. and, and budget trends, whether there yeah. will be increases or not, all those kinds of things are, are well, detrimental and, to that yeah. process too, I imagine. Well, and of course, the budget quote increase that Defense Department's experiencing now, more than eaten up by inflation. So yeah. it's actually a budget decrease. Um, what does the future of that look like? Um, how does one, how would one successfully marry whatever the, uh, an organization like the PPBE board comes up with, with what you and your colleagues on the defense business board, defense innovation board, uh, do, or is it just the purvey of those organizations to say, here are things that you should do Congress, and it's up to them to do it in an environment where there's going to be a house of representatives with a majority of what five seats or something like that. Well, so so the budgeting process, PPBE does not require congressional. That's a, that's an internal policy. It was in, it was actually invented by Robert McNamara. Um, so that that you could do administratively, I guess. And, and and part of the reason I said I'm going a little afield here is because I haven't really thought through the implementation mechanism. But I know that's what you're here for, Stan. To think through <laughs> all this stuff for me. Yeah, think. But but I know from what, the work we're already doing, uh, the work that the metrics team did, um, and some of the other efforts that are underway, that you have to find a way to tie resources to 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 these challenges and 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 some will argue oh we do that we do that but i would argue do we actually look at take the technology modernization fund and i'm again being a little bit notional here when people come in with uh, with concepts to get funded for modernization what does modernization actually mean and against what metrics and long term objectives is the investment being measured not only initially, but on an ongoing basis. And how does that play into the resourcing process with the comptroller shops and so forth? I, I, I know that there are folks dealing with that, but at the end of the day, that may be the ultimate way that you actually drive change because if you don't have the money, you're not going to do anything anyway. And the broader concept that you're calling attention here to, uh, and I think wisely, is the, the tighter and tighter and tighter and tighter interaction and integration among all of these specialties. We are in a completely different era in 2022 and going into 2023 than we were five years ago and especially 10 years ago or 15 years ago when I came into this space where 
IT is tightly integrated into acquisition and acquisition is tightly integrated into workforce issues and workforce issues are tightly integrated into financial management issues and so on. And that's an, that, those aren't four offices anymore. Those are, well, those are one, one mission tied together in four different specialties, right? Let's add the fifth piece to it. They're all inextricably linked to the mission. Yeah. And we don't often do enough assessment associated with the actual mission impacts. I, I can say this without getting, again, I can't get into detail at this point, but what we're seeing is, this is Stan speaking, not the Defense Business Board, but my impression of some of what we're seeing in the study we're doing is we have a workforce or an, an instant entity that is growing worrisomely sanguine or, 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 or accepting of suboptimal capabilities. Um, and, and so, you know, if you look at commercial models, some of what we're seeing, you would, wouldn't be allowed in a, in a successful commercial entity. And we have to get at that. And I think the, the four pillars you talked about, absolutely. They would say they work together, but they don't work together at all levels. But at the end of the day, we don't measure it all the time against mission. Stan Soloway, great to talk to you as always, my friend. Thank you. Great to talk to you, Francis. Thanks. You can read more about the Defense Business Board in today's show notes at defensescooppodcast.com. The Defense Scoop Podcast is available on all the podcast platforms. If you don't want to miss a show, you can subscribe and get the show every week on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever else you get your shows, and on any device you get your shows. And if you really like the Defense Scoop Podcast, leave us a five-star rating and a review. It'll help more people find the show. The Defense Scoop Podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney and Carlin Fisher help me put the show together every week, and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. The Defense Scoop Podcast returns next week. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening.